officially recording episode 253 with Captain William Hawk. I should have asked you how to pronounce your last name. Albrock? Albrock. Okay, got it. Albrock. Captain William Hawk Albrock, author of Abandoned in Hell, Escape from Vietnam's Firebase Kate, which, as an audible connoisseur, if I may be so so bold, it's in for, it'll be in the uh, it'll be in the description. It'll be sticky to the top comment. As an audiobook connoisseur, I would like to think of myself as one now. Nine hours, completely doable. And maybe this shouldn't be the right word to describe it, but pretty funny. I mean, it's perhaps the most inappropriate way to describe it because it's a very serious topic, but I'll get to that later. Pretty funny. <laughs> you had me laughing at sometimes. I was like, I'm not yeah, there's sure. There's some gallows humor in there for sure. Yeah, there is. But before I start running my stupid mouth and making a fool of myself, which I've done for 252 straight episodes, so I don't know why I thought this one would be any different. How about you introduce yourself, sir? Uh, Bill Albrecht. Um, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Recipient of three silver stars and obviously, as I said, author of Abandoned in Hell. Um, so... Can you give just a very, very brief outline for everyone listening just about your book, what happened, just so they know what we're diving into? Sure. Uh, I joined the Army when I was 18 years old and and a thousand years ago in 1966. Went to uh, all Catholic high school here in, in the area I live in, Rock Island, Illinois, home of the Blues Brothers. And uh, probably the most uh, substantial thing that I did in high school was play varsity football. Didn't study, just wanted to get out. And when you graduated in this area, you uh, the agri- agricultural manufacturing was huge. John Deere, yeah. International Har- Har- Harvester, Farmall were all huge at that time. And that is pretty much where everybody went to. Or college, of course. And I didn't want either one of those. I certainly couldn't get to college. So myself and my best buddy, Joe Murphy, we, we went down to the Army recruiter in Rock Island. And, uh, of course, we graduated from high school, you know, C averages. And he says, what can I what can I help you boys? What do you got in mind? Now, this is Vietnam is just really starting to take off. Yeah. And the draft is big. And we said, we want airborne infantry and go to Vietnam. And, and he looked at us like we had two heads. And he uh, he, he he questioned us and uh, to make sure that we weren't, you know, he was being set up. Yeah. Once he realized he was, he goes, well, this is your lucky day. I just happen to have two slots here. <laughs> and he, you know, he does them all. And he goes, hey, there they are, airborne infantry. And I'm sure you'll go right to Vietnam. And he's about only got two. I only got two. They're going to be gone later on today. Got to take them. Sign up. Oh, we go. (laughs) And we go. Uh, And we ended up in Chicago. We went processed through in October '66. And um, literally, but unless you're older, you won't understand the meaning of this. We took. uh, We left Chicago at like uh, quarter to eleven, ten to ten to midnight. Excuse me. And we're heading down to Clarksville, Tennessee to Fort Campbell for basic. So we literally took the last train to Clarksville. Big monkey stuff. <laughs> anyway, so we get down there. And as soon as you got there, test, 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 yeah. test. Test upon test upon test. Like a couple of days. And they pulled myself and Joe out. 
and they said, uh, you gentlemen have scored high, high enough to go to take the uh, OCT. And I said, what's that? They said, well, if you pass the OCT, you can go to OCS. And I don't know what this is. And OCS could have meant Oklahoma Cook School. Yeah. I had no idea. OCS. And he said, no, it means Austin County. You can become an officer in the United States Army. I, I thought all the officers in the Army came from West Point. I had no idea. I had never heard ROTC or anything. Yeah. Took it, passed it. The minimum score to pass it. And I didn't want to take it, but, you know, the drill sergeant just take the test. Okay. Yeah. The minimum score to pass it, I'll never forget, it was 115. I scored 115. Hey, that's oh. just that's just being on time and, and doing what you need to do. Joe, who was more interested than I was, scored 114. So then they called, uh, there was like 220 of us in the basic training company, and they called us 22 guys in that passed. And this big captain, and my God, an officer, oh, Lord, he had been to Vietnam, he'd come back. He said, there's a gentleman, he says, you're all going to go to OCS. He says, we'll, we'll get you with class dates and da-da-da. Pick a branch. Don't get exotic. Keep it Keep it basic. So, any questions? And I'm in the back. I said, sir, and he goes, yes, private. Uh, uh, what if you don't want to go to OCS? He goes, I have a levy. I have a quota. I have to come up with 22 bodies. I have 22 here. You are going to OCS. Any other questions? No, sir, thank you very much. <laughs> Off I go. So, I ended up down at betting school for boys uh, in 1967, still 18 years old, mm-hmm. just 18. I mean, not just, but 18. And I went through uh, six months of hell with uh, Officer Candy School uh, Infantry, uh, Fort Benning. Turned 19 mid-August of 1967. Graduated August 31st, 1967 as a brand new, newly minted second lieutenant at just 19 years old. Now, uh, luckily, I was getting nice to head by the beer. I've always looked older. So nobody really knew how old I was, and I certainly wasn't telling them. Well, then I, my older brother, Bob, my hero, my role model, he was in Special Forces, Green Berets, right? He was he was in there, and I put in for it. And by God, I got it. So off I go to Fort Bragg, hooked up with my brother. He was getting ready to go to Vietnam. And I went through the Special Forces officers course, which was – which was tough. Yeah. And I tell you what, you know, physically, I mean, I'm 19 years old. I just, I just came out of a, almost a year of continual trainings. Uh, Austin County School was, was really physical. Parachute school, jump school, airborne, uh, bedding. That's another nothing but physical. Yeah. And so physically, I, I was ready to go. But mentally, the Special Forces is the scholastics involved is unbelievable. Entirely. I mean, it rivals uh, college and then going for your master's. I mean, you have got to learn so many things, you know, like uh, you're, you, you're parachuted into behind the enemy lines. And you have to get resupply. And this would be one of your problems. Okay. It's a night and the wind is at so many knots and the plane is flying into it. And it is going so many knots. There's a 16 door bundles each way this much. Um, how big calculated, how big does your drop zone need that, you know, and so on like this. Oh my God. Oh, but 
They taught it to you. Yeah. They taught it to you, and you applied it. And I graduated from uh, from Special Forces course. And my first tour assignment was Thailand, training the Royal Thai Army. Now, I firmly believe that was because my brother Bob was in Vietnam, and there would have been a chance that I would have been, uh, I could have, you know, been in, in the same exact unit he was. Could have been a chance, and being an officer and his enlisted, that wouldn't have gone. So he was sergeant. I did my time. I was supposed to get out now because I'd done two years commission, but I volunteered for one more year because here I had been trained and trained and trained to go to Vietnam to serve my country. And I had yet to do that. Yeah. So I felt obligated that I needed to do that. Yeah. You know, maybe take somebody's place that wasn't as well trained as I was and go to Vietnam. And there was, the, of course, there was a sense of adventure. There yeah. was the, the ultimate adventure was awaited me, too. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a very patriotic individual, and I went ahead and went in to our personnel guy, and I said, I, I want to extend for one more year, which you could do back then as an officer. You could do one year and then think about going indefinite. I said, I want to go one more year, but only if I can go to Vietnam with special forces. And he looked at me like I had two heads and said, this is your lucky day. I have to have one more slide. I said, save it. I've heard it before. Just give it to <laughs> Just me. Just give me the damn paper. <laughs> and August of 1969, I arrived in Vietnam. Um, a couple weeks later, I turned 21. So now I was a captain. I made captain. Uh, I'm sorry. I turned 21. A couple weeks later, I made captain. And I went to uh, in for my interview. Where do you want to go, son? And I said, I want to go to the Mike Force. Now, this is important, the Mike Force, the Mobile Strike Force in two corps. I-Corps, two corps, three corps, four corps. I-Corps was mountains and butted right up against North Vietnam. Yeah. And it was dead in Indian country. I mean, there, there was, it was just tough to keep the Special Forces base up there. They were continually being overrun, but they had they had a foot train. Two Corps was the Central Highlands, the mountains. Beautiful, mountainous, great climate, and they were really, really engaging the enemy a lot there. Uh, and then Three Corps, Four Corps, as you went down to the Delta, I said, uh, my brother Bob was had been in Two Corps. He was home now. I wanted to go to the mountains. It's not a problem. Uh, and I want to go to the Mobile Strike Force, the Mike Force. They said, oh, yeah, uh, Something else, please. The Mike Force is for combat veterans, for guys on their second tour, third tour, professionals. These guys have, have been to the altar, yeah. and they have had their baptism of fire. Yeah. They've all proven themselves. Uh, we, we admire that you want to go there, but you, you don't have the experience, and so therefore that's a, that's a hard no. Yeah. So I said, okay, where? And anyway, they sent me to Southern Two Corps, in the Central Highlands to this camp of Buprang. Buprang uh, was down in southern uh, Tukora, near the camp, very near the Cambodian border. And I got there in about September, and the monsoons had been in and out, and uh, a lot of repairs needed to be doing. Uh, sandbags needed to be filled, bunkers needed to be dug deeper, overhead cover, so on, so on. It was about 400 strikers. Mountain yards. Mountain yards 
are the uh, would be the equivalent to the American Indian here. They are native to Vietnam a thousand years ago. They're on the coast. They got pushed back in when the Chinese came down and took over the, the, the best part of Vietnam, the lower lands. And they were more Iron Age. They were loincloths, crossbows. They had villages and different tribes, and they lived in stilt homes, and they would burn and slash. They'd, they'd grow crops and have livestock, and then when the land they'd move several miles away and, and burn what was there and, and start all over again. And the, the Vietnamese called them savages. They, yeah. they thought they were less than dirt. Yeah. And they hated them, and the bounty yards returned that favor. The North Vietnamese would come down on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, go into their villages and, and steal anything they, they could get their hands on, their livestock, and they would in, in, uh, script their sons to use them as bears up and down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So there's no love laws between the mountain yards and the North Vietnamese and the South Vietnamese, but especially the North Vietnamese. The French went in there, and that's how they got their name, mountain yards, which means mountain people, in the French in French, and used them. We went in there after the French left and used them even more. We made them into a fighting army, not that the French didn't. And by the way, if you thought the French didn't, Fight hard in Vietnam. Read the street. Uh, read the book of Street Without Joy. Bernard Fall. Okay. You see, they they fought hard. Yeah, different kind of war. So they uh, we got them, recruited them, and they were at Bupreng, four hundred plus strikers. We call them strikers, plus their families. So this was a really good sized special forces camp. They had living fighting bunkers where they would actually, uh, this would be their position under attack, and their families are behind them, bunkered up. So how hard are they fighting, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, wonderful, wonderful people. I can't say enough about them. Matter of fact, uh, the book that Marvin Wolf, my co-author, phenomenal individual, tremendous writer, made me look good. We dedicated the book to the Mountaineers. Yeah. Well, um, because of the size of this camp, it was in the way of Bambi Tuit. And Bambi Tuit was a, a district headquarters uh, of, uh, of South Vietnam, a part of it. And, and after that, it would be Saigon. I mean, it was, it was a major metropolitan area. And the district uh, chiefs and everything would be there, the district representatives. Well, what they intended to do is come down the Ho Chi Minh Trail with enough force to come through, hit Bu Prang, take Bambi to it, march to the sea, cut Vietnam in half. And in 75, it's, they did that. They yeah. came from the north, they came from uh, the uh, west, and uh, marched east. Well, Bu Prang was getting ready, and all the intelligence said, they're going to hit Bu Prang, they're going to hit all oh, yeah, the other coming in. So they put out three fire bases, Andy Keaton, Susan, in kind of a triangular around the camp of Bupreng in the Central Islands, Southern Central Islands. On those camps were three artillery pieces, two 155 howitzer, one 105 howitzer. And of course you put those there, you need the artillery men. So you had about 27 artillery to man the guns, to do the fire directional control and so on. Well, they're not gonna just sit out there by themselves. So they put about 130 mountain yards, mm -hmm. a perimeter 
around them to save because you can't shoot guns and defend yourself at the same time. So the uh, Keat, which is what I'm obviously most familiar with, they had about 130 mountain yards dug in around them to provide security. I know this. I don't really pay much attention to it because I am the executive officer to uh, Nick Palmer. Nick Palmer was the, the commanding officer. Heck of a guy. I mean, he exude command yeah. the commander. Yeah. I, I made light of him in the book. I said was on Mount Olympus, but I mean, he yeah. looked like every special forces commander should look. G.I. Joe. executive officer. And uh, we had a captain on every fire base in a, in a, a special forces NCO, plus um, the mountaineers, every one of them, because the, the uh, captain was in charge of all the security there. So it was October, late October, the colonel from the Bambi Tuit, our colonel, Special Forces, flew out for an intelligence briefing. Now, this is back in the days, I mean, they didn't have satellites, um, you know, GPS and all that. That obviously didn't have that. So we were getting raw intelligence from different areas. Everything pointed to it. And I was in charge of giving them the briefing, and I got the briefing, and after it was over, uh, Colonel Simmons came to me and he goes, Great job, good briefing. By the way, pack your stuff. You're you're heading to uh, Firebase Cape. You're going to go out there for, for a month and uh, provide security because Captain Barnum's he's he's coming up. His rotation's up. I said, but sir, I, I, they need me here. I I'm I'm getting this ready. My I'm doing all this in, in preparation for our big attack that's coming. Yeah, and he, uh, yeah. Good point. Get on the next helicopter. Head yeah. Out fire. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. Right. Thank you for your input. Uh, thank yeah. you for your uh, input. Appreciate that. Yeah. Saturday in the morning, pack my stuff. Noted. <laughs> we'll file that. Okay. Yeah, I'll file that on this piece of toilet paper. Get on the helicopter. <laughs> and we'll use that toilet paper later. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I got my rucksack, got what I needed, and... um. Got a resupply helicopter out to Kate. I got there about three o'clock in the afternoon, and Kate was uh, like somebody came with a bulldozer and scraped off the top of a of a jungle hill. Sure, it was about eighty to one hundred yards long, like about a football field, and about fifty, sixty yards wide, kind of in the shape, kind of of a football. What a beautiful, what a beautiful analogy of an American football field with a bunch of bunch of white boys on top of a hill in, yeah. v- in Vietnam. What a beautiful analogy. <laughs> yeah, you get the picture. Yeah. Three sides of it was very steep. Yeah. One side, the north side was not. The north side was a gentle slope. We flew in uh, the resupply, and I jumped off with my gear, and Captain Barnum jumped on him. Hey, how you doing? See you later. And he took off. And Danny probably was there. Danny probably was my uh, my sergeant, my special forces sergeant, consummate special forces non commissioned officer. He yeah. was just I can't really say enough about Danny. Probably. Yeah. And I said, uh, "Hey, how you doing? What's going on?" And he goes, "Welcome to Firebase, Kate, sir." He said, "I got here yesterday." I said, "Well, looking around here, you got I got guys playing volleyball." Yeah. Uh, the Americans and the, and the uh, mountain yards, 
Um, they're playing cards everywhere you look. People were sleeping. Uh, there, there just didn't be any sense that we were actually in a combat zone. I didn't say anything. I said, uh, let's let's do a walkabout, Danny. Roger that. So we walked the perimeter. It was horrible. The the fighting positions weren't big were deep weren't deep enough. There was little to no overhead cover. Uh, the sandbags were deteriorating. The fields of fire had been overgrown. There wasn't a con- enough Constantine and certainly Constantine barbed wire, that circular barbed wire, and certainly not enough claymores. I was not happy. And I looked at him and he goes, I didn't want to do anything until you got here. I knew you were coming out. I said, and rightly so. So we had a meeting. I had a meeting with all the leadership of the Americans. And I told them, from this moment forward, there will be no more volleyball. There will be no more card playing. There will be no more nothing until we get this place combat ready. And then right away, do you know something we don't know? I said, no, I don't. But I want to be ready in case something does. Oh, as as some of the guys told me later, we go, oh, we had this hard ass yeah. Green Beret captain in here yeah. now, and yeah. I said, well, that's that. Yeah, and uh, then I had a meeting with the Mountain Yard leadership because they have their own leadership. Yes, yeah. I'm in charge of them, but yeah. they all come from village and tribes, and they have their own leadership internally. Yeah. and I met with them, and I gave them the same ultimatum. Okay. Now the sun, it gets dark earlier there. And when it gets dark, it gets dark. There's no ambient lighting whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. So it starts getting darker. The sun's getting low in the sky. And I felt pretty good. Pretty good. So I think we've done all we can. So we went to our little bunker that we had that we shared, he and I, to sleep in. And um, I took my boots off. Now, anytime you're in the field in the jungle in a combat area and you can actually take your boots off that's a good night yeah i took my boots off and it had to be about 11 30 at night all of a sudden all hell broke loose firearms back and forth i'm up put my boots on and take them off again for six days and out into our northern area where the gentle slope was, it, it went through as a saddle, came up, and on the other side was another hill, not as big as Kate, about half the size, but there was foliation at the top, and we had put a listening post out there because this is the most likely avenue of approach. And they had made contact. It sure sounded like it. So I'm up at the perimeter, Cape Northside, which was a gentle slope down. Jungle came in to separate the two hills. But there was a natural gap right between where the jungle we would think it would meet. You could have probably driven a, a big truck through there. It was that wide. Okay. And then the jungle went out again, and you had amb- we called it ambush hill at the top. And around ambush hill and around Cape was about thigh high grass. And it was just kind of flowing, and then the vegetation was at top of Ambush Hill. About a half a dozen yards come charging down the south side of Ambush Hill, through the gap, up, and we could we had enough moonlight we could see them coming up to Kate and come to the designated area that we would use to go in and out of. And they came in. I said, "What do you got? What do you got?" And they said, "Buku." 
VC. Now, first of all, French, beaucoup, a lot, okay. Yeah. A lot of French influence. VC. Anybody that was shooting at them was VC, Viet Cong. Didn't matter if they're hardcore NBA from the north. It didn't matter. Yeah. VC, bad guys, okay. Yeah. So, what do I have? I don't know. Um, let's call in Spooky. Spooky gunships. I have to stop and tell you what these are and explain them so because I'm going to refer to them later. Yes. Spooky uh, gunships was a C-47 a cargo aircraft propeller from World War II. It had three mini guns out the side, and each one shot a 7.62, which is a pretty nice little round, yeah. bigger bigger than the 16. Yeah. And they can put one every square foot with these mini guns, with these Gatling guns type thing. And they are unbelievable. They're painted very dark and black on the bottom of it at night. They're slow and they're lumbering, but you can't really see much of them to shoot them down. Yeah. Called up Spooky. Spooky guy came on station. They said, "What do you What do you got, Hawk?" Now my call center wasn't quite Hawk yet. Became Hawk later. What do you got, Hawk? I said, "Well, I don't know. I got this. Boom, boom." So I started vectoring them around Firebase Kate and Ambush Hill, shooting where I thought, "Well, they made contact here, so we know there's some there." Yeah. But let's check all these other different uh, routes that somebody would use. So when Spooky shoots. There's uh, the first thing you see is this red because American traces are are red. You see this red come down to the ground, bunches of looks like a solid string. Yeah, and that's every fifth round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you hear the roar of the gun. So it's you see it come down like fire, and then you hear. Well, when they first were deployed in 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 war. Um, the uh, North Vietnamese thought, thought it was, you know, oh, it's a dragon. I was, about, a to, dragon. I was about to say, that's got to sound like a dragon. They're, they're in the jungles, and all of a sudden, they can't see it. They just, there's a lumbering, and then they just, yeah, breathes fire, the ground explodes, and then they hear, right? It's just like, that's a dragon. Sorry for interrupting you. I get really excited about gunships. <laughs> no, no, that, that's quite right. And, and uh, they, they initially called them uh, Puff. Yep, the magic yep, bank. Yep. Then then they then they did a few things and they went to Spooky and then later Shadow and Stanger and so on. Yeah. They're different iterations. Okay, felt pretty good. Uh, so I said, you know, about two thirty in the morning, went back to bed in our hooch. Very well. Danny, I said tomorrow morning before let's let's get our squad. That's prior, I'm sorry, going back a step. After we did the walkabout, I said, um, what do we have going on around us? What kind of patrols have been running? He goes, sir, he says, I don't think they have. He says, they've, they've gone out hunting, but they haven't run any uh, patrols to see what we have here. I said, well, tomorrow morning, let's take out a couple dozen guys, reinforce a squad or two, uh, and let's, let's, let's do some cloverleaf patrolling around our base area and see, see what we got going here. He said, Roger that. Well, that night, everything transpired. Well, that morning, just just at dawn, incoming. Mortars, uh, B-40 rockets types, RPGs, if you will, and a recoilless rifle, direct fire, uh, 90 millimeter, or whatever the NVA had, 87s. And they lit us up. And uh, remember I told you the bunkers weren't very good in the fighting positions. We took a lot of casualties. 
I'm up and I'm calling in Medivax and I'm trying to get um, some more people on station because we have no idea what we got. So we're getting the Medivax in and uh, the firing stopped. And I said, um, Danny, let's let's go see what's out there. Yeah. So Danny and I took a couple dozen guys and I said, we're going light. Uh, I said, ammo, water. Um, yeah, that's about it. Ammo, water. And we headed out. We went down the northern slope, through that gap, up towards Ambush Hill where they had made contact, through the thigh-high grass up into the foliation on Ambush Hill. And sure enough, there was a there was a shot up uh, pith helmet NVA North Vietnamese Army pith helmet. I think a broken AK forty seven. There were blood trails, uh, so we had we had done some damage. Yeah. It was spooky. Okay. It appeared that whatever it was had come from below Ambush Hill. Now, so we went up the south. We're on top. Now we head down the north side slope of Ambush Hill. So we, we were spread out. You know, we had our point. We had our uh, rear guard, and we had our flank and our main body, and we're heading down the hill. Boom, we walked right into them. They were set up in the wood line. There was no way we could have seen them. We walked right into them, and they opened up with us. We, we down, we were down. We had cover. Well, I mean, we had concealment. We did not have cover. We had concealment, and I called from the, to maneuver back to this berm, which we did. So berm on the side, which would be the right side of Ambush Hill, and we engaged the enemy. I said, okay, we know where they are. Let's slide off to the right here, slide down into the jungle. We did. Got online, and now we're going to come around like a gate. Yeah. We're going to come online and flank them. Yeah. Hit them on the side, roll them up. Infantry 101. Yeah, yeah. Hit them on the side, roll them up, flank them, flank them. And as I'm doing that, forward air controller comes on. Fat, forward air controller. And he's talking to me, he says, Hawk, he says, uh, he says, I see what you're doing. Now, there there were some other things that happened in between that, but it's in the book. And I said, uh, yeah, he says, I see what you're doing there. And he says, man, he says, uh, there are a lot more of you than, than uh, of you than there are. And you got to get out of there. Yeah. Because you're trying to flank them, they're flanking you. Yeah. And there's a bunch more. So he doesn't tell me twice. So I withdrew back to that berm, and now we're trying to call in some air support. Yeah. In the meantime, one of the mountain yards said, uh, we're, we're down a man. We lost a man. So I had the forward air controller fly over where we had engaged the enemy the first time on the northern slope of Ambush Hill. He said, sure, no, you got a man down in, in the tall grass. Okay. So said, Danny, bring up the, we had a machine gun and grenade launchers. I said, bring him up. I said, um, I'm going to go get that guy. So myself and two yards, we dropped all our stuff except for our weapons, slung mine, and we took off running like a bat out of hell. Danny opened up, and they opened up with everything we had at where we took fire from before, and they didn't shoot back right away. And we got, myself in the two yards, we got to him, and sure enough, there was a yard right there laying, and he had, he had a serious head wound. Got him, put him in a fireman's carry, and ran back. Once we started running back, 
Doing line opened up. And then they were like, oh, okay. And uh, we got back to unscathed, myself, nor the other two yards actually was hit. Now, people would say, why did you do that? You're the commander. You're the you're the individual that's calling the radio and everything. That's kind of a risky thing for you to do. Well, yeah, it is, of course, but a couple of things. I've never, ever asked anybody to do anything I wouldn't yes. do or had done. Yeah. And these mountain yards that I'm in command of now, they, they, I just got there the day before. I hadn't even been there 24 hours. They don't know anything about me. Yeah. And I'm going to have to have the, them carry out orders. Yeah. With you got to get their respect. Uh, I do. I yeah. need to get their respect. Street cred. And, and this did it. Yeah. yeah street cred, you, if you will. You got your Vietnam. This, they understood now that I valued my life on the same par as theirs. Yeah. You they just, respected yeah, that. You just got into their gang initiation, right? Yeah. You just you just got the brand on the side and they're like, All right, <laughs> all right, all right. We're I gotta run to the restroom really quick. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, all right, yeah. Well you can monologue for thirty seconds. Tell them where to buy your book. I'll be right back. Oh, um it's a pretty good book. Um I get on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, and a little bit more about my co author, uh, Marvin Wolf. He was captain of Vietnam also, uh, a super guy, and he was a prolific writer. I mean, he writes tremendous uh, mystery-type uh, books, too. But if you look up Marvin Wolf, W-O-L-F, uh, on, uh, you know, or Google him or anything, obviously this this book will come up. This one right here, just happen to have it. Um, and uh, talk about Marvin. Uh, again, there's a guy I can't say enough about. He was... Uh, he he really brought so much to the uh, writing and 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 the uh, standard of how we did it. If you've liked if you liked, we were soldiers once and young. You'll enjoy this too because it's 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 sort of the same. Uh, uh, I don't want to say venue, but sort of the same uh, couch, the same way. Thank you for your patience. Talk to we talked to so many people uh, in the book. That we went into. I was just telling about Marvin sure. and and come the writing. Yeah, and I want to address here later. And write this down. How the book came to be. Yeah, yeah. I have a, I have a notebook of you know, whenever I have thoughts popping up. I just write down <laughs> random notes to jot down, it was like random ones of not to get off top, but yeah. The, I drew the analogy in my mind of when you first showed up to Firebase, Kate. If you ever read any history about LeMay, Curtis LeMay. Curtis LeMay. Sounds very similar to if you ever go back and look at the histories of him taking control of Strategic Air Command. He went out to Offutt Air Force Base, and then he went from uh, Air Force Base to Air Force Base. It sounds very – he gets there, and he's he's basically like, what the hell is this? <laughs> he's like, what is this? He's like, you guys are all smiling and having fun. That means we're not doing it right. <laughs> And he's, yeah. but that's, but he just went out and they were kind of the same thing. They're like, well, what do you mean? We're at, you know, World War II is over. We're at peace. And he was like, he remembers from World War II. He was like, we will never be caught off guard again. Like we will be ready to go within like 60 seconds at all times. But that's kind of the imagery I was getting was you show up and it's like, what are we doing? Why are we yeah. playing? This isn't a summer. Like if we're going to go relax, let's go to the city and get drunk and relax. If we're going to fight, <laughs> let's fight. Let's not do the middle ground. Right. But, yeah, yeah. And by the way, these these guys, the yards. I mean, Andy Glove. They they responded right away, and then yeah. Americans too. Well, now we're back to Berlin. Yeah, yeah. We got yeah, our yeah, wounded, yeah. and uh, the Ford Air Controller, the FAC 
comes and says, Hey, he says, there's a lot of them down there yeah. and they're, they're trying to cut you off, keep you from getting back to Kate. That that's it. Let's go boys. You know, and we, we started maneuvering uh, ourselves down and Bushell through the gap and up to Kate. We got up to Kate buttoned up, let the games begin. And it did. And they started hammering us almost, I mean, not all the hours that the sun was out. At night when Spooky got on there, they kept a much lower profile. Can can you can you can you speak on buttoning up for a second? Sorry to interrupt. It's because I, I know again back to Lemay. I know like buttoning up for like those nuclear bunkers was quite literally close the door, start recycling the air. Like we are buttoned up, but obviously Firebase Kate wasn't NORAD. As someone that just has no experience in service or combat whatsoever, what exactly is is buttoning up? Is it getting behind fortifications? Is it is it are you pulling something are you like literally closing things what what is buttoning up sorry that's something i thought about oh, uh, remember those positions i told you weren't deep enough yes they well they were now okay okay they were, they were shoveling and they were getting them deeper okay when i say button up i mean take your defensive positions improve your defensive positions of what you could they could no longer get out there and improve the fields of fire because they were getting shot at okay but uh when i say button up they're, they're you're getting in your fighting position and, and getting ready instead of walking around and hey what's going on over here that was over that part was over now we were in our fighting positions okay okay all right so yeah back to it so you're taking on fire you just buttoned everything up we got it we're we're buttoning up and the artillery guys sprung into action they are starting to fire but that an incoming barrage we got first thing in the morning took out two of our guns uh they had us pinpointed this was if you're familiar with Dien Bien Phu, uh-huh. how it went the valley, and the, the Viet Minh uh, brought the artillery pieces, dug caves and put them back here, brought them out, shot them. We were in a bowl of sorts. They they were there was hilltops all around us, and um, they were firing at us and sometimes down at us. God knows why they put that fire base there. Yeah, what the hell? It was horrible. But they did. Yeah. They did, and um, they knocked out, the direct fire knocked out a couple of our tubes. As a matter of fact, they did replace one. We were able to replace one with a big Chinook heavy lift, but that was knocked out too. Uh, and the 105 couldn't be raised and uh, elevated anymore. All it could do, you could traverse back and forth, and it was kind of on a line of sight. And so we could shoot straight into the hills. Wasn't real effective unless we were massive ground attack and using full shit round. Mm-hmm. So in effect, they had knocked out all of our artillery. Yeah. However, Susan and Annie could fire at support, but you never fire artillery when you have air support. Now it turns out there wasn't much of anything going on in Vietnam at that time. So we got Probably. good yeah. assets and resources. Yeah. The first things came was uh, was helicopters. Yeah. My God, I, I don't know how they carry their balls around, I swear. <laughs> they, they come in, and then when you think they're the bravest guys in the air, then the medevacs come in. Yeah. These guys are nuts. Yeah. And uh, as I think um, Joe Galloway, who actually wrote the foreword to our book, uh-huh. Joe Galloway, we were soldiers. He has, he's got this the God's Own Lunatics or something. He, has a, he does a piece on YouTube about it, and it is it is spot on. 
they're in there and they are they're kicking ass and taking names what had happened what i come to find out later is two regiments of nva the 66th regiment ho chi Minh's own as they were called and the 28th regiment infantry regiment out of north vietnam and an artillery regiment had, had moved in and on their way to Bupre, you know, like, oh, what's this? Well, let's knock this out real quick. The 66th Regiment is the same one that Hal Moore um, ran into in the Idrang Valley in 65. We were soldiers once. Mm-hmm. That's the same one. And, and these these guys, they're not super soldiers, okay? Don't, don't get me wrong, but they're good. Yeah. They're damn good. They're well-disciplined, and they're, uh, they have what they need to fight. Yeah. And they're good soldiers. I highly respect them. I don't fear them, but I, well, I did then. Yeah. But I highly respected yeah. them. And they were there. And so we were outnumbered. Well, there was about five to 6,000 NBA surrounding us. And we had at that time maybe 150, 160 guys when we started. So we were vastly outnumbered. And if it hadn't been for the, the chopper pilots, the the attack helicopters with their rockets and their mini guns. And then when they weren't shooting, the fast movers come in. The Air Force would bring in their F-4s. Yeah. And they would just bomb the piss out of them with these big bombs and napalm. And they kept them back. They kept them from overrunning us. And if it wasn't meant for those guys, well, we wouldn't have blasted the first attack. You have, I was going to say, your description in your book of air support. I rewinded that and listened to that about 10 times in a row. You finish it with saying it was great theater. That is, that was the best description. I got goosebumps listening to that. That was something. Yeah. So we were holding our own. So here we are. Uh, now, I suppose maybe 140, 130 now. But we were holding our own. Um, and they were getting us resupply, and, and which was ammo, and, uh, and then at one point, we're out of water, and it's hot. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of little things that I'm going to kind of jump over, but we were able to get it in uh, as best we could. But it seemed like every time the ammo was come in, we were just about out. Mm-hmm. But we were fighting. We were holding our own. Now, this is my absolute first time in combat. But the Army had trained me. I had been through intensive training. And although I had never been shot at it, as they say, shot, fire, and anger, I've never heard one before, I knew what to do when I did. And that is, uh, without a doubt, the most important thing is your training. So I relied on my training. I didn't have any experience to, to get me through, and it did. I knew what to do and how to do it. And uh, one thing, uh, you know, the uh, necessities of other invention, I'm talking to forward air control, and I'm trying to pinpoint where I need him to put a white phosphorus rocket, because these are bird dogs. These are Cessna airplanes. I talk to him. He then marks it with a rocket. I vector him in, and then the the fast movers come in, the jets come in and bomb on that mark. I can't talk to the jets. Yeah. I can only talk to him. Choppers, I can can talk to, and I can tell them where I want them. Okay. So... I'm, and they're just not getting it. So, because on me, I'm not explaining exactly where I went. Oh, you see the ridge with the two. Okay, come down there. So many meters. Okay. So I got an idea. I took my 
CAR-15 and a cold automatic rifle, shorty versions, and we called them that. Yeah. And I took a magazine and I loaded up uh, nothing but tracer, red rounds, took all the ball ammo and put the red rounds in, put it, went out there, and I went out to the perimeter, and I had to kind of lay out in the open behind some sandbags, and I said, now watch this. I went boom, 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 boom. And I put about six rounds exactly where I wanted that airstrike to be, right where that uh, recoilless rifle was shooting from. Yeah. Got it. Boom. He puts a rocket in it. Boom. Then they, and they took it back to the Stone Age. I said, wow, I'm on to something here. <laughs> I did it again. I found another place, and I did it again. I did it the third time now. They're on to me. So every time I went out after that and I started plunking away, uh, the wrath of God came down on me. But it worked. It worked amazingly well. So the chance of getting wounded was worth the effect that uh, it did. So I did that quite a bit until until they had us so surrounded you could just drop drop a bomb anywhere and hit them. Yeah. It didn't really matter at the pinpoint anymore they were doing it. Yeah. Oh, so you got a visitor. Hi, Maggie. Maggie, yeah. Mag- Maggie, would you like to join the podcast? <laughs> that's my dog. Uh, yeah, for everybody listening, that's, that's the dog. Yeah. Hi, Maggie. But yeah, it's that's, again, a, a kind of some more beautiful image, beautiful relatively in that word, bombing back to the Stone Age. Yeah, you know, LeMay, you know, bombs away LeMay. But I thought with that same Stone Age kind of uh, uh, verbosity, is uh, it's kind of like, 2001 a space odyssey right when he discovers how to like throw the club and it's like bum bum it's like (laughs) you put you put tracers in the magazine and it's like this is the next big step in evolution like you know spray it phosphorus bomb and it's like bum bum it's the next big step but yeah but yeah as you said it gets to a point where you don't need precision anymore because now it's just they're overrun we're not 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 quite but they are you know, like ants, ants on a on a cart carcass. They're all around. Well, the the chopper pilots now. Um, I am all over because my my big gun is the radio. Yeah, that's my gun. Yeah, so I can go to different points and and talk on the radio, talk to the choppers, talk to the forward air control, bring in bring in what we need. Um, and then time to time, yeah, when we'd have a breach in the wire where they'd get through the, the initial part of it. You, Everybody, hands on, grab your rifles. We don't have time for anything else but to, to beat them back. And they, they did make a couple penetrations yeah. where we had to, we had to, they almost completely got in, but we, we were able to get them back. Yeah. So um, we uh, are holding our own. Yeah. We're holding on to this worthless piece of real estate. And I had no intention of doing anything but hold on to this. Yeah. And I think it was about day three. We started getting incoming in the mid-morning, if not. And it was so heavy. It was something we had never done before. It just shook the ground. And I said, my God, it's, it's, it's artillery. Now, we couldn't sustain artillery. Not yeah. artillery. Yeah. These bunks were logs in earth. Yeah. And artillery would just wipe them out. Yeah. So I called the forward air control. I said, no, Mike A2, this is hockey. You, you gotta, you, we're getting, uh, we're getting incoming. And from the way I'm, I, I can feel it coming in. I see it coming in as it's coming from, uh, the West. Now the, to our West is Cambodia, maybe a, a kilometer and a half away, not far. 
and which is a, quote, neutral country. So, yeah, exactly. Air quotes on that one. Yeah. He flies over there and he says, yeah, he says, I got it. He says, it's uh, coming from a um, Cambodian army base. Camp Lin was the name of it. Mm-hmm. One time French, then Cambodian. And I said, well, knock him out. And he goes, uh, um, I, I can't. It's a neutral it's a neutral country. It's across, as we used to say, across the fence. Yeah. I go, oh my God, I'm thinking, oh my God, what do I do now? What do I do now? We can't do this. Is, they're going to they're gonna annihilate us. And uh, he comes back on the air and he goes, Aki says, I can't uh, go across there and bomb them unless the ground commander <laughs> declares a tactical emergency. I said, I declare a tactical emergency. Roger. <laughs> and we went in there and they bombed the piss out of it. And uh, my name ended up on Richard Nixon's desk within an hour as creating an international incident. It was in Time Magazine, a little blurb uh, that, that we had bombed this neutral, Good. peaceful, peaceful Cambodian army. It ended up there twice because I did it again. Good. But we didn't get any more artillery. Yeah. We just got the rest. Yeah, yeah. And I, pilots would say they would be flying up there and they would see after the jets had been through and then there was a lull, he said it looked like, and when you mentioned ants, he says hundreds and hundreds of little black dots yeah. coming up, coming up the slopes. And he says, he says it was, it was incredible. And then another time, about day three or four, they told everybody to back off, and they told us to take extreme cover. And they dropped a B fifty two arc light strike with this, as the term goes, danger close. Yeah, it was so close. In fact, so the shrapnel. Killed uh, into our perimeter and you know, killed one of your men and injured too. I was gonna say, yeah. well, I want to, yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to focus on that because above all else on this episode, I wanted to get to the B fifty two bombing, but I wanted to clarify in my own mind in your book, um, yeah, about your name ending up on Nixon's desk in Cambodia. Was that now? Was that the first uh, instance of? or not or using their airspace or you know technically going this you know the secret war in cambodia was that the first instance oh no okay no okay. no not at all as a matter of fact the, the mere fact that he knew that if i declared a tactical emergency that we that he could do it i'm sure he's he's done it before but you exactly. know there, there's repercussions in doing it sure you can't just do it without any provocation and it's and because otherwise you're going to get your ass in a lot of trouble sure Okay. Nothing yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. But um, yeah, I was gonna say in your book, it's, I can't do it unless the commander says. And you're like, well, I say it is. <laughs> it's just right. It's you can't go to the bathroom unless Tommy says you can. Okay. Well, Tommy says you can go to the bathroom, right? It's the B fifty twos. That again, that that vignette in the book. I listened to that on Audible. I listened to that. I was in the gym. I listened to it again driving home, and I parked in the driveway and i remember my mom came out she's like i thought i heard you come home and i was like holding up one i was re-listening to that your description of the, in the in, this is how I'm, I'm trying to frame it for the listeners is like 
some, you know, millennial like me, 30 years old, never seen combat, right? You watch movies your whole life. You play video games your whole life. And in video games, right, the pistol's always the weakest, right? You have all the seller stuff, and at the very end, you have a pistol. The first time I went and shot a pistol with my brother, I remember thinking, that was so much louder and more powerful than I thought. Wow, everything must be scaled up. So, in, again, so on that, kind of going with that train of thought, in my mind, it was always like, you know, if it's not like a nuclear bomb, it's nothing. And then like you go down into smaller and sm- and I always viewed, you know, like a helicopter or an F4 as the, the pistol. And I imagine if I actually saw them, I would be, holy shit. Yeah, they are. Your description of the B-52 is what kind of put all that imagery in my head. Because someone like me, I just, you know, I've watched a million videos of them. I've watched uh, Linebacker, um, Rolling Thunder. I've watched all these, you know, campaigns from, you know, the aerial footage, the gun camera footage. But again, it's it's always a little more, it's always a little more abstract, right? Like Stalin, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. It always was a little more abstract. And one story was a guy, about a guy in the Hanoi Hilton, and he describes a B-52 doing a, a, a sortie and like the doors in the and the where he was staying, like the wooden doors, he said flapping like like uh like leaves in the wind, just just like you wouldn't believe, like shockwaves making everyone nauseous. And he's like, you just you don't think about it because you always see it zoomed out on a on a evening news. Yeah, I say all of that to say, yeah. Can you just say a few words on what that was about? The bombs falling at a terminal velocity, going over 800 miles an hour, strapped in steel, hitting the ground, and then thinking, oh, that was, you know, that wasn't even the primary expo- uh, explosion. And then how are we going to survive? And yeah, like you said, I mean, it killed one and, and injured two, but it was, you know, if that didn't happen, it, then you were all going to die from something else. So sorry for that that three-minute interruption. I, just, I had to emphasize how... Anyone listening to the book, if you have any interest in the Air Force, this book is worth getting just for the F-4 description and the B-52 description. It's It gave me goosebumps. So sorry, yeah, the B-52 arc lights. That's, that's where we are now. Well, uh, first of all, they, they sent us a, a, a coded up message into the command post that the artillery guys had set up. And, and it's hard for me to, to give enough accolades to the, uh, the American artillery guys over there. They were phenomenal especially when they went into the infantry role <laughs> well uh it said basically it said take extreme cover they didn't tell us they didn't tell i did not know that it was an arc line was coming in yeah i did not know it and um i remember in my fighting position in my bunker i knew that something was coming in but i didn't know what and i looked up and i saw these flashes Flash, 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 and they weren't that far away. And I saw the ground start to move, like roll. Yeah. Yeah, like a wave come waving at me. And then I heard the explosions. And I'm like, my God, what is this? Because your mind races so yeah. fast. And at first I thought it was a, a, a the back blast or something they were shooting at us, but I knew right away I, I ruled that out. And then I put it together. It's, a, it's an arc light. Because it was highly classified, and when they, where they were going to drop us, supposedly, it was uh, it was unbelievable. It was uh, it was something I'll never forget. Well, and and what was what was highly classified? 
the art clients when they would leave uh, to bring one in there was uh they would not uh, broadcast it you know, they, they, the whole thing was to catch the enemy off guard yeah yeah it didn't quite work yeah. that way but that was the intent yeah and it just yeah because you said in your book you're like you had put in a request for a b-52 but you're like i guess now they because eventually right they gave you guys priority one in all of vietnam we were yes we had the top order because there was nothing there was no other major uh fights and here we had a couple uh Fight regiments wrapped in. yeah yeah and it's yeah yeah i remember you describing you're like how are we going to survive this just, I mean, yeah. the B-52s, you were like, how are we going to survive this? And the, uh, and I can't say enough about the, the, the spooky guys at night, that one of the guys, they were, things were tense. Uh, and one of the guys in the sky, um, Captain Al Dykes, he's in the book. He's uh, he's in on the uh, the DVD, um, Escape from Firebase Kate, the documentary. He had this. He was. He called. He says, uh, "Hey, hey, Hawk. This is the. Uh, this is uh, this is Al Dykes, the Alabama boy, and Spooky Four One. I'll never forget. He had the calmest, most reassuring voice uh, when things were really tense at night. And I would factor him in all around there and then pass it off. And I try to get some sleep. Um, Al Dykes recorded everything, and as Spooky did, anyone was all over. He sent me a cassette of, of uh, 90 minutes of him over Kate to include when we, the night uh, we went, uh, the breakout through enemy lines. He, he recorded all that and I've got it and it's, it's online. It's on the, uh, let's see. Yeah. It's online and on my website and a few other things. I will, it is, some, it's some good stuff. I will absolutely link. I'm going to listen to yeah. that after. I'm going to have pretty neat. Yeah. That's insane. I was going to say, yeah. I feel like there's got to be some psychological benefits to him coming across as very calm, cool, collected, right? Absolutely, because things were tense. Yeah, yeah. And he, he sent it to me. I didn't listen to it in Vietnam because I, you know, I knew it was on it, and I ended up going to another combat unit, So, I, but I had it. Well, I still have to the state, even though it's been transcribed into a... a a CD. Yeah. But I did listen to it when I came home. Okay. Now I'll tell the average person I took a six pack, but it was more like a 12 pack. And I went to the backyard in August in 1970, sat in a lawn chair, had a cigar, drank some beer and listened to it from beginning to end. And I never listened to it again until we started to write the book. Yeah, I can't. Do you think it? Do you think okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I was gonna well, say. Well, yeah. we um, things things started going downhill real quick. Sure. The NVA had brought in uh, anti-aircraft unit, thirty-seven millimeter, and and uh, maybe the first time ever it was brought into Vietnam. They put it on a hilltop, and it was on the thirty-first of August of uh, October, Halloween. Joker eight five was coming in hot. He was coming in hot. He was coming in hard, and he was he was shooting them up. And they hit him. And uh, Joker at 8.5, I think it hit his tail boom. And it, it, it started to catch fire. And Joker 8.3, I think, was behind him. He's, he's going, now, I'm, I'm listening to all this. Because, I mean, literally, they find so close into 
Kate and then, and then Jungle and then another hill over here. He's flying between them, shooting at the bad guys as they're coming out of the wood line. And I'm there calling him in, and I can hear him calling there. He says, you're on fire. you got to set down. you got to set down. He goes, where's the, where's the space? And then ran right to the ground, um, blew up, and uh, all killed. Yeah. Oh, no black and his entire crew of Joker A5 was, was, uh, was killed. And I mean, I was close enough where I could, we all were from our position where we could feel the heat uh, sweep over you from the explosion. It was, it was something. So they, they made a decision not, not to have any more close in um, attack helicopter air support. And rightly so, rightly so, because it became suicidal. They would still get us air, uh, air supply, air support, helicopter support for medevacs. And I was judicious in calling them in and for resupply. And for resupply, they would try to, uh, like it's one of one of the guys, John Beckenheimer, he was, uh, I got to know these guys that write in the book. He was finding a Chinook, which is the, the mm-hmm. twin-rotored big yep. supply. Yep. He was bringing us in some much-needed supplies. And he came in, and as you're coming in, they, uh, they get enough momentum, and they can unleash it, and the momentum will take take it in and it'll tumble into your perimeter and it had worked this time it was coming in they're starting to take 51 calibers through their through that aluminum sheeting and he thought he had the airspeed he thought he was close enough and he he kicked it loose and it hit the edge of our perimeter and rolled back down into the uh, to the nva and it probably as he said first time probably on record in vietnam of of an American unit resupplying an NVA unit. First, so, time, first time for everything yet, right? Yeah. And, and they lit it up. They lit it up, right? So he felt really bad about it. Yeah, they used some of it on to some of the flares. Uh, he felt really bad about it, but, I mean, that, that's war. It's a yeah. crapshoot. Yeah. So now, and I've um, fast forward through. You don't need to fast forward, man. Take your time. No, I, I, I do. I do need to fast oh, okay. forward okay. There were Now it's, it's November 1st. Okay. I'm pleading. I said, if you want me to hold this ground, I need more people. I need more people. And uh, the word went out. Now, the whole reason that we were in Vietnam was to engage the enemy. Yeah. Kick their ass or send them packing. And here I got, I got a lot. I got more than I can handle, certainly. So... Let's go. Well, the word went out. It went out through the American units. Now, the, the 4th Infantry Division, a fine infantry division, to play coup. 4th Infantry Division, 10,000 men. 10,000. They're about 100 clicks away. Um, to our, we- our west, maybe, I'm sorry, to our east, maybe 50 clicks away, Bambi to it, was the 23rd Arvin, Army of the Republic of South Vietnam. And there's another 10,000 infantry. So we said, we need help. Well, the word went up through the American channels. Hey, they got to have a fight on their hands. Let's, let's get them in. Nixon was at that moment in time, well, for our last few months, doing Vietnamization. We were turning the war over the Vietnamese. So they, they barred the Americans from coming in to our rescue. And it would be a rescue now. And they pass it to the Vietnamese. And they said, well, we can't come, but you need to go there. And, the, and I told you already how the Vietnamese thought about the mountain yards. 
And they said, nah, yeah, we're not going to do that. We need to stay in Bambi 2 and protect Bambi 2 because when they're done there, they're there's a real good chance they're going to come to Bambi 2. And we got to be ready. And they said, if, you know, no, you don't understand. You have to because if you don't, they're, they're going to annihilate it. They said, yeah, see, here's the deal. We don't have to and we're not going to. So neither side would blink and neither side was coming. All I knew, I didn't know the politics of all, is that we weren't getting any help. Yeah. But Special Forces said, screw this. And they said, let's bring in the Mobile Strike Force, the Mike Force. Remember I told you? Yep, about the, yep, the professionals. Yep, oh, the experienced the guys. Experience. The most professional, the best. Yeah. And all of their strikers, all of their mountain yards are combat, uh, combat hardened, and they're all paratroopers. And they're, they're all highly paid. Some would say mercenaries. Mm, they're just damn good and they're paid well for it. Reimbursed professionals. Yeah. Yeah. They brought them in. I mean, uh, nothing, take nothing away from the camp strikers, but yeah. the Mike Ford strikers were, well, it'd be like a regular infantry versus a ranger. I mean, yeah. these guys were hardcore. Each week you're good. They're better. Yeah. So they started bringing them in. They were going to bring in a reinforced battalion, maybe 600. Again, nobody knew there were thousands out there. They just knew I was in a hell of a fight. Yeah. And I could see them through the rolling hills. I could see them off to the west landing. And there there were natural landing zones out there. They put in a, about a company, a little bit more. Well, I know we saw them, but the the NVA saw them too, and they shifted probably maybe a thousand of their guys to take them on. So they maybe got 160, 180 guys out of 600 on the ground, and the NVA hit them. Now here they're out. They're in the open field. They're in an LZ. They're they're not dug in, so they're fighting behind logs and and, and mounds, and you know, we're dug in. And the NVA are putting everything in. You cannot land helicopters. You cannot continue on uh, in a uh, combat insertion with troops in a firefight. Yeah. That's just impossible. They shoot the birds out of the sky. Yeah. So what was there was there. And they fought, they fought like banshees, but they had to give. And they dropped back. And I'm listening to this on the radio. And I've got my binoculars, and I can even see with the naked eye some of what's going on. I can see the birds coming in. And they fought, and they dropped back, and they re- reformed a, a skirmish line, if you will, and fought some more. NVA pushed, they dropped back again, reformed again. The NVA pushed, they dropped back, and this time kept on going. That was supposed to be our relief. They were supposed to come into Firebase K. That was not going to happen now. Nor were there going to be any more Mike Force inserted. That's when I realized we're on our own. Yeah. Where there is there is no help to be had. Yeah. I went back to the command post that we had dug in, and about that time, the Mountain Yard leadership, the three of them, said basically to quote Eric Burden and the animals, "We got to get out of this place." I said, "We are. Yeah, we are. There's, there's, we're desperately low on ammo, desperately low on water. I got so many walking wounded, I, I can't even count them all." I said, yeah, we are, yeah. but not now. So I had a meeting with all the leadership. At a meeting with the American leadership and the Mountaineer leadership, I said, all right, gentlemen, this is, this is our options. 
we can stay here, die in place, but but to what end? Yeah. So we're at the Alamo buying time for Sam Houston. You're not at Norman. Surrender, and that will never happen. Yeah. Or we can attempt at a breakout, and that is what we're going to do. Now, you notice I didn't say, all right, well, let's show, see a show of hands here, and who wants to do this, and who, how many want? No, because as a commander, you you, you seek counsel with the people that, that in the know are right, your subordinates. You seek counsel. But the ultimate decision is your decision. This was my decision. Yeah. And this is what we're going to do. Yeah. And they all said, and this is what we're going to do. So I immediately had him code up a message. When I'm talking to Special Forces, I could put things in code. But when I'm talking to everybody else out there, I couldn't put it in code. I had to talk in the clear. Mm-hmm. As a request permission, abandoned firebase came. Now, they knew what was going on because they'd been following everything. Mm-hmm. They knew that the mic force wasn't coming, and they knew the mic force couldn't get there. They knew I was low on ammo. They knew I was low on water. So this would be a no-brainer. Request permission, abandon fire, basically. In the meantime, I said, okay, let's destroy all our codes, all our notes, our logs, all the radios that we're not going to take out with us. We're going to spike the tubes, the artillery tube. And we got to do this very surreptitiously because we're literally surrounded. They can watch us. Didn't take them real long to get back to me. Permission denied. I went, give me that pad. We are leaving leaving Firebase K. Send that. I didn't care. Yeah. The decision had to be made. Yeah. We kept about it. And about 15 minutes later, I got a response. Uh, permission granted. What we're going to do is we're going to have the Might Force move up and link up with you. Have, a, have an element, you're going to go to them, they're going to lead you back to the, their main body that they have. And we're going to have spooky on, on station, they're going to they're going to shoot in front of you. They're going to spray as you go off, and you got to go off the north side. Yeah. You know what? Maybe. Maybe we got a chance here. Yeah. Uh, Roger, Roger to all that. Well, then they started in on the clear, and, and uh, and then the Air Force is talking to me and everything. Hey, make sure you go when you get to Ambush Hill. You have to go on the right. Oh, no, sorry, the left side because the Mike Force unit is going to be down there to hook up. So a lot of this stuff is, was coming in the clear. It shouldn't have been, but it was because of this radio situation. We're ready. Night starts to fall. Got real dark. Real, real dark. As soon as it got stone dark, I gathered everybody to the north end. Now we're down about 130 guys, I think, somewhere in there. Everybody was on the side, the north slope, ready to go. We're still inside our perimeter. We're still inside our wire. And we waited. We waited for uh, Spooky to come on station to shoot in front of us so we can proceed. It seemed like an eternity. Spooky calls up. Hawk, this is spooky, whatever. Roger, got some engine trouble. Gotta go back, gotta get another. Don't worry. Elbow's coming. Roger. I passed the word. And just hushed whispers. Ten minutes later, fifteen minutes later, Hawk, this is spooky, another number. Go ahead. 
yeah, we got some problems too. We're gonna to have to go back, but don't worry, there's another one coming. Well, I'm thinking Hawk is worried, okay? I am uh, I am really, really starting to get worried now because I was not afraid at any point until then. Yeah. Because I was so busy. I was so busy doing so many things I fear just didn't didn't really register. And when I wasn't doing something, I was I collapsed in exhaustion and slept for several hours, two, three hours, boom, and I'd be right back in. So, but now, but now I'm not doing anything. Yeah. And now I'm starting to get scared. Yeah. Everybody was scared. Everybody. And I'm talking on the radio to find out where the hell that spooky is this time. We got to get out of here. And I got the push to talk to press. Spooky, this is Hawk. Spooky, this is Hawk. Over. Nothing. Jesus, they're not even answering me now. And I did this a couple more times. And I look at Tex, who was my RTO guy. And exactly. I said, this damn radio isn't working. He goes, sir, kind of a smile, drawl, Texas drawl. Kind of released to talk to switch. You got it depressed. And as long as I had depressed, I was, I was transmitting, but you couldn't receive. So I didn't. Right away, they come back, hey, Hawk, this is that. And I went, Oh God, yeah. uh, Roger, how far out? Okay. And I, I, that's when it hit me. I said, if I don't get control of myself here, I will get us all killed. Yeah. I have got to get control and I've got to face the fact that I'm going to die tonight. Yeah. And I know where I'm going to die right there in that gap. And so I looked up at the, at the, at the cosmos, at the, the galaxies, at the stars. And I went, I said, dear Lord, I, I know I'm going to die tonight. There's, there's no way I can't. And you know, and that's okay. That's okay. But please just let me get as many of these fine young men out as I can. That's all I ask. And then I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. Hey, you know, and I, you think about the people who are going to miss you and everything. Yeah. No, no, that's kind of the way it goes. Yeah. And once I did that, you were at peace. I was at peace. I was no longer afraid. I was no longer, I had no more fear in me. Yeah. And it was just like somebody threw a switch. Just washed it all off. Focused. I ran back. I said, everybody stay here. I'm going to run back, make sure we didn't leave anybody. So I ran back to the other end of Kate, the south end. We didn't leave anybody, but I could, I could hear the NVA coming up the slope now. You could hear them coming, clipping the wires very slowly because they thought we were still there. Yeah. So I ran back to the other end. In the meantime, they started dropping mortars on us. Flares. When they went out, I said, let's go. And so we started to go single file. Now you had to go single. And now you have to go single file. You you, you just can't do formations in the pitch black. Single file, we start going through our own wire first. And don't you know somebody has a triple wire? And we all hit the ground. They burned for maybe 30 seconds or so. It seemed like it seemed like an hour. We were silhouetted out there, everybody laying motionless like we were dead. And I'm waiting for the incoming. Nothing. So it went up. We started down the north slope, and we got about 30 meters from the gap. My point man, my mountain point man stopped. I'm kind of maybe 20 back. Danny Pirelli's in the rear. He's got the rear guard. And I worked my way. I said, what's going on here? And the interpreter says, he, he won't go. This man was was frozen. He was a brave soldier, but he was frozen, paralyzed with fear. And I looked at the gap, and I looked at him, 
and I took my car 15, I had slung, worked it in there, full automatic, finger on the trigger, left hand on the radio, follow me. And I stepped off. And I got through the gap. I got in the gap and no nobody shot at us. I'm like, my God, this is this is a miracle. Yeah. This is exactly, exactly where I would be. Yeah. They're coming at the south end, so anybody's escaping, they're going to go off the north end. But they're not there. And I had drilled it and drilled it and drilled it. Now I got this point guy, and I'm just shoving him through, shoving people through. Let's go, let's go. I told him, and we rehearsed it, not rehearsed it. We told him and told him, you go left, you go left, you go left. Because when Spooky gets on station, which he is not, he's going to fire, and he knows that we're going to go left to the ambush, you know. He went right. I could see him. We had some moonlight now. I could see him go to the right. I'm work it out later. Yeah. What left was the L-shaped ambush. The NBA had set up on the left because they knew we were going left, and they that's why they let us through the gap. They were going to get us there on the left side of ambush hill. They had a 51 caliber on top of ambush hill pointed down fuel the fire right into us and if we would have gone left we would not be doing this podcast but we went right did did the mountain yard have some uh some intuitiveness or some divine intervention or what well, yeah the hand of god I'll yeah give you that. yeah yeah but nothing other than the hand of god yeah so by the time i got everybody moving i ran up and i caught up to the point and we started coming very, very close to the top of it, which you know, kind of on a military crest of it, and came down because we were supposed to meet the Mike Force unit deeper into the jungle, like about maybe six or seven guys to lead us back. That's when they told us that the Mike Force ain't there. So Spooky's not going to be shooting for you. The Mike Force isn't going to be linking up with you and lead you back to the, their main body. You are once again on your own. Okay. We started penetrating into the jungle, single file. Again, single file, jungle, night. That's, well, at that moment, I still thought that my forces there. I didn't find out about them until a few minutes later. So I was calling them. I said, we're coming in now. We're going to come into your perimeter. We're going to link up with you. We'll be at single file. And, you know, you, you were going into it. And just then, the top of Ambush Hill, started shooting and it was at 51 caliber they had turned it around and were shooting down on us and all i don't all it registers with me is tracers are going over my head about Jesus. a foot over my head and they're green now i should have put that together green enemies are green ours are red but i'm i'm screaming on the radio cease fire cease fire i thought spooky was shooting on us and they said we're not shooting i said somebody is and that's when i went oh my god they're green and they're big, and they were. What had happened is when you, a fifty, this fifty-one caliber is a tripod, and when you're shooting, shooting down, you can only get to go so far down because that's the angle yeah. of the steep hill we're on. So they couldn't get it low enough, so they're shooting over our heads. And a guy. What else? Yeah. We crashed, literally crashed into the jungle, and they're shouting, and guys are yelling, and. And uh, I'm trying to get everybody organized and trying to forget about counting heads. It's pitch dark. But I said to the Americans, and the mountain yards were good. I figured if anybody can do this on their own, they can. Let's all get together. Yards, I told her, 
make sure you got all your people. The, the uh, Americans, yes, we have everybody. Let's go. So we started going single file through the jungle. I have to lead. I have to leave. I have a map. I have a flashlight with a red filter, and I have a compass. And I know approximately where the mic force is. They wouldn't give me their exact location because they don't want to give it on the air. And rightly so. So we start heading out there, and I want to put as much distance as possible between the NBA and the other pursuing us. And we start moving. And single file on our own. We left about 8.30 at night, and after the breakout in the, in the firefight, that was about 2.30. We went very, very slow, dodging the NBA. They were out. They were everywhere. And they, they, they came so close to us one time, they were maybe six meters from us as they went by in the dark. And the dark, and we were all hunkered down, and we let them pass. We are all hunkered down and ready, hoping to God they didn't see us or hear us. And they did. They just kept going by, going by, going by, going by for a very long time. And then we're up and we're moving again. And after about, oh, now it's about 2.30 in the morning. From what I could piece together in our conversations, not with the Mike Force, but prior to leaving, where they had kind of intimated where they were buried, we came to this clearing, this meadow, maybe 160 to 80 feet long, maybe 100. And there was a big jungle wood line on the other side of it. It was level. And I said to my, my, I had two artillery lieutenants in my mountain yard and Danny Pirelli, Danny was right there with me. I had my red filter flashlight. I had it down. I said, I think, I think they may be right over there in that wood line. And just about that time I heard the distinct clank of like somebody dropping a rifle. It's a distinct metallic clang. And I heard that. So I called him. I said, you know, Mike Forrest, this is Hawk. I think I'm, I mean, I got, I described where I was. At the end, I said, could you have somebody come out to this meadow and so we could identify it and lead us back? I think you have somebody come out. <laughs> I said, yeah, okay. Well, once again, I've never asked anybody to do anything I hadn't done or wouldn't do. So I told the Danny, I said, now, I'm going to go out there, and I think I'm okay. But if it's not, it's the enemy, because somebody's over there. About to um, find out. You do this. If they start, if they start, if they take me, forget about me, get these guys out of here, go due north. Go due north as quickly as you can. And then when it comes sun up, there's going to be choppers out looking for everybody. But take them, keep going due north towards the blueprint. Copy. So I went out there and I walked into this clearing and again, about knee high grass and I had my rifle and my, my pistol belt. And I said, uh, I'm an American. I, I said, I'm an American. Are you the mic force? I didn't yell it. I didn't whisper it. I didn't about that tell no answer. And I kept walking across this field, this meadow. I'm an American, I get a mic for nothing. I said it a couple, two, three more times. And I just keep getting closer and closer and closer to the wood line. And when I actually stepped into the wood line, I looked down and there's, and there's a, uh, a mountain up sitting up there smiling at me. He's in tiger fatigues. He's got an M16. I know it's Americans. 
And I was like, and just then Sergeant Simmons and Sergeant Stevens were the two Mike Four sergeants come in and said, Hawk, where's your people? I said, across the middle. He said, go get them. Get them back here right now. We got to get out of here. We got to get out of here now. Roger that. Boom. I run across the middle. I get them and I bring them all back. We hook up. The Mike Force puts a unit. Some of their people in front. Some of our people in the in their back, and then we took the middle part, and we set off. We we left there probably I don't know two thirty three o'clock in the morning. We got back to Bupreng, eleven thirty on November second. We lost one man. That I mean that that has to that, I mean that's the hand of God. It is. That True. there's there's at a certain point, at a certain point, the rational mind you have you must look at it. And go, okay, well, now this, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, I mean, what, what other, what else is there? I mean, no, there, I, I can't, I've run over it hundreds of times in my mind. And the yard going right, the mountain yard, we call them yards, uh, is a term of endearment. Yeah. Uh, he went right. And he was told left a hundred times, you know, you know, many times. But he went right. Okay. If I'd have been in the lead, I would have went left. That would have but been. Yeah. I was too busy. And uh, so thank God for him to start with. And then that, that when he opened up on that 51 caliber, I mean, my God, they're huge rounds. And, and, they, and, they, and they're, they, they couldn't, he couldn't get a load off. He's shooting over our hands. Now, we returned fire, obviously. We're now in a firefight with him. But still at all, we were able to get into that the deep, dark jungle and break contact. Oh, it was just so many things. So, got back. Now, later on, when I, when I got back, of course, then it was a pretty big deal. So they had uh, several other things happened after that. But one in particular, the group commander of the Special Forces was a full colonel. That's all it was of all the Special Forces. Iron Mike Healy. He... Uh, he was a uh, no-nonsense, hardcore son of a bitch. And he flew out to Camp Ubuprane a couple of days later to personally congratulate me. Now, a couple terms here. OIC, officer in charge. OIC, we got to know that. And, and he flew out of Nha Trang. Nha Trang, Vietnam, was a pretty good city in the Special Forces compound. Pretty nice. Yeah. Pretty nice. Yeah. And they actually had an ice cream store there. Yeah. They really did. Yeah. Where you could get at, which I would blew my mind when I got to Vietnam. So he um, he flew flew in, and he's on the uh, tarmac there. Uh, and our, the whole team is out there, my team. And he's there, and he oh, outstanding, best traditions of, of uh, the uh, Special Forces, on and on and on. So thank you, sir. My honor, sir. He says, you name it. Where do you want to do? You want to come back and be my personal aide? Done. He says, you want a desk job back here to do this? You tell me where you want to go, and I'll get you there. You name it. You've earned it. I said, sir, I'd like to be the OIC of the Dairy Queen there in the tray. And I, to this day, I find it hilarious. He, he, he did not. Your, your description in the book that is what made me laugh the most when you were like a little, you're like a little like goblin on his way to do mischief, saw me, jumped in my mouth, went down my throat, took over my body and said, I would like to be the OIC at the ice cream shop. And then he hopped out of me and I, and I stared in awe as the spawn of Satan used my body to say <laughs> that description just in, cause we've all done that, right? We, okay, That's Marvin. Marvin's got the gift, man. Yeah, I it, told the body, he goes, I got it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it just that description was just outside of the entire insane story. That description was hilarious. Just this little spawn of Satan jumped in me and took over my body. He was a. I said, just taken. What else? And I said, no, I'd like to go to the, the two core mic force. Done. Did it about face gun in the helicopter, flew out, never saw him again. Yeah, that's what yeah, I say. Yeah. I got what I wanted. Yeah. Yeah, that's where the that cookie. was the mic force. And yeah. that was. And you are. I, I would. I think we should save it for another episode because I want to have you on a second time. You you have an extensive history with the Secret Service, correct? Yes. That would make an awesome second episode if you are willing and able to talk about it. I understand. Yeah, that we'll, you... we'll talk about talking about. Okay. It's, there's um, uh, I, I've I've done interviews about Secret Service, and there I'm, I got no story, no no. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. This happened, but there was a lot of funny shit happened too, though. That hey, dude, that's. That's what this. You don't have to. People always tell me they're like, "Man, I don't know if I'm interesting enough for your podcast." I'm like, "Dude, just come on and shoot the shit. I don't care." It's yeah, yeah. And well, thank you for telling your story, sir. That. I well, mean, I want to. And this is. Oh the, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Uh, the veterans out there. <clears throat> so I, I continued my tour, and um, I ended up. Um, Going in the rear of my last two months, I got I got wounded the third time. They they put me back there is what they did. Unless you're John Kerry, then they send you home. That's the story. <laughs> so uh, I came home in, in 1970, <laughs> and it was a tough time to be a veteran, especially Vietnam. Yeah. A real tough time. I'm not whining. I'm not complaining. Yeah. I'm just telling you, it was a tough time. Yeah. Baby killer. Yeah. Hey, hey, yeah. LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Yeah, no, it's a bunch yeah. of ungrateful communists, and they're around was, right now. It was tough. Yeah. So uh, us veterans, we, we kind of hunkered down. We kind of got together. But what I did, and I think this is this is probably true from the Revolutionary War, Civil War, World War One, II, Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, I took all those memories, the horrific memories, and some of the stuff that I just never wanted to relive and pretty much think about. And I and I uh, I bundled them all up and I and I put them in in a closet. Some people say a foot locker, some people say a wall locker, and I I nailed it shut and padlocked it. And I and I just wanted to keep those memories out of my way because you know I I'm behind. I'm four years behind and. Uh, you know, I'm going to college now, so I got to get a degree. I'd like to start a family, uh, get a career, boom, boom, boom. So I, I, gotta, I, don't have, I don't have time to dwell in the past. Okay. And you do. And then, I don't know. I think the first time I was with the Secret Service in New York, in the New York field office, and I'm driving home in a commute, and the, the closet came open. And a few memories came out, a couple of memories, one or two. And I didn't have a flashback, and I didn't, oh, my God, what am I going to do? No, I, 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 I remembered them, and I remembered them vividly, and I processed them. I remember, yeah, that's how it happened. I do remember that. I do remember him. I remember this. And I processed it. And when I was done, I took that memory, and I... I put it back in the closet and closed the door. But the but see now that it had been open, the door doesn't go closed all the way. Yeah. It'll go closed almost all the way. Yeah. But you just can't get it back all the way closed. Yeah. So then after that it could be it could be a smell. Yeah. It could be something you saw. It could be a turn of phrase. Yeah. 
and the door comes open yeah. and you don't know when it just comes open and things come out and you deal with them. You deal with them, you process them, you go, okay, boom. And you put them back. Well, in 2008, the door came open. Now I'm no longer working full time. I, uh, I, I'm older and the door came open and everything came out. And I sat down and, and I, and I started to write, I started to write and I didn't, intend to write a book. All I did is want to put the story of Firebase Cave on paper for my family. It made a lot of news in the day. It made a lot of headlines. People asked me that. So I, I did. I put it on paper with no intention of writing a book. It morphed into a book and then into a documentary. And there's even talk about making it a film. But I'm not holding my breath on that one. But a lot of veterans go through the exact same thing. And when it came to writing the book, which followed after, <clears throat> it was a cathartic, a cathartic experience, just like this. Does so you mind talking about it? Not now, I don't. Well, one of the things when the book came out, I mean, we sold over twenty thousand copies. A lot of my my guys I was with in Secret Service, I'm retired, you know. Of course, they read it. I see them at conferences, reunions. They go, "What the hell? How come we didn't know any of this?" I said, it never came up. Put it in the closet. Never talked about it. There was no need to talk about it. Yeah. And now it's out there. And because I did that, I'm, I'm very much at peace with everything. And I'm able to sit down and talk about it. I do lecturing and, and talk about leadership and problem solving, this type of things. But that's uh, our generation of, of veterans and two quick uh, uh, war stories. Sure. And you know what the difference between a war story and a fairy tale? War story starts out, I'm sorry, fairy tale starts out once upon a time. A war story starts out, this ain't no shit. Well, this ain't no shit. Um, I'm at 1996 when I'm at a Special Forces reunion in Fort Bragg. And at that reunion, I, I hooked up with Sergeant Stevens, Lowell Stevens, and Sergeant Simmons, the two guys from the Mind Force that I hadn't seen since November 1st, 2nd, of 1969, I got a picture of him. It's in the book. Of the first time we met, uh, and we and we had we had some cocktails. Yes, we did. Uh, later on, at the at the more formal event, I'm in there, and there is uh, we're all dressed in suits and black ties and everything. And there's Bo Grice. Now, Bo Grice is a legend in in the uh, in Special Forces. He was a colonel. He got out as a colonel. He was a tremendous soldier, and he's one. Back in the, geez, was it 70s? Maybe when he was uh, getting funding, uh, clandestine funding, he was going to mount a rescue into, into Vietnam for the MIAs and POWs, which I do believe some were left behind, which, but there are none now. But, that, but I digress on that. And he, uh, he's quite a guy. He's, like I said, he's a legendary figure. Well, I met him when in Vietnam at the... Uh, Officers Club in the train. And you know, he was, I don't know what rank he was in, maybe a major or something. Because I remember uh, introduced myself. So I saw him, I walked over there, I said, uh, Colonel Wright, and he goes, uh, yeah. And I said, uh, my name is Bill Albrecht. I met you in 1970, I think it was 1970, at the train Officer Club in Vietnam, boom, boom, boom. And I just want to, to say hi again, sir. 
And he goes, so you you were uh, with Special Forces? I said, yeah, sure was. He put his hand out, shook my hand, and he said, welcome home. 1996, that was the first time I had ever heard it. It's the first time anybody ever said to me, welcome home. Now, it's a standard thing with Vietnam veterans that we say to each other, but I had never heard it. I'd never seen it, and I had made a point from that day forward to use it every time I saw another Vietnam veteran. That just gives you some insight in how we were we were treated. Again, not complaining, not whining. It's just the way I was. Yeah. Another buddy of mine, John Catherine, and John uh, had a distinguished career in, uh, in the teaching field in this area. John was infantry, combat infantry's badge. That's the, the musket with the, the wreath around it. This is the most coveted award that any infantryman could ever have because that's been that's you've been in the ship you you have earned this and it's very strict on, on how what you have to do to earn it not heroics but doing your job in combat granted some people wear it that shouldn't but the vast majority earned it well john was a combat veteran and he is he is 1970 he just got back from vietnam it's february and he is uh you know a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks earlier, he was in the jungle. And now he's sitting at this uh, this gin mill in uh, Moline, Illinois, called Hafner's. He's waiting for his, his bride to get off work and meet him there. It's a Friday night. It's busy. He's, he's having a beer at the bar, and this guy looks over and he says, hey, man, nice tan. He says, Where are you, where'd you get that? He says, Bill, he says, I, I sit there, I looked at my beer, and I thought about it, and I looked at him, and I said, uh, just got back from Florida. And he goes, oh, okay. He says, that was it. He said, not because I was ashamed of my service, not because I, I, I didn't want to. And he says, it's because I didn't want to engage. Yeah. I didn't want to have to explain anything. I didn't have to justify. I didn't want to have to tell him all this. Yeah. Now, if there been another veteran, he says, sure. Yeah. That's, that's vet to vet. But I just didn't want to get into it. And that's the way we were. Yeah. We, who are you? Where have you been? Okay. You've never served? Okay. That's, that's okay. I'll, I'll be over here. Okay. Yeah. See you later. Yeah. Those two stories kind of typify a lot of uh, who we who we were then. Yeah. Right. It's like, how'd you break your arm? You know, do you tell them that it was in the line of duty, or you like I fell off a skateboard? Right. It's yeah. just it's just end it before it starts. Yeah. And now um, we're about to end this here, and I just want to leave you with sure. a, with a quote. Sure. A poem. Her last name is Wilson, and she died, I don't know, 1920s, I think, or 30s. She wrote a a poem called Courage. But courage courage is something, they say, hey, that that person was very courageous, or the men on Kate were very courageous, or what she did, but was very courageous. And, you know, okay, fine. Until Until I heard this definition, then I said, yes. Courageous is the word, because in her poem, the quote is, courage is fear that has said its prayers. I love that. And when we're done, I, and with that, I'll, I will close out. It's been an honor, and we'll have to do this again someday. Well, thank you, sir, Captain William Hawk Albrook. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say, because I'm younger than you, I don't have service. 
But welcome home, damn it. Screw all those communists. Screw them then. Screw them then and screw the ones in my generation now. And I'll save that rant for another time. But good Lord in heaven, all those communist millennial Marxists out there, go fuck yourself. Thank you, sir, for making this country what it is. And thank you to men like you who serve to allow boys like me to have a life where I have a podcast instead of being drafted to go fight 8,000 miles away. So welcome home, sir. And if you're a communist, I don't respect you. You're a piece of shit. Not to end on that note, but thank you, sir. to serve. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I'll send you an email or a text and... We'll work one out for a second time. Buy the book, everybody. Abandon in Hell. Stick it in the top comment. It'll be in the description as well as I will. Put, I'll go to your website and I'll get the um, the audio cassette tape from uh, uh, the air support. And okay. thank you, sir. Thank you for your story. Thank you for putting up with uh, my unconventional interview <laughs> techniques. <That's okay. laughs> thank you, sir. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, we'll wrap this one up. I'll text you. I'll email you. God bless. God bless America. Stay safe, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving and um, love each other. Captain Albright, thank you so much, sir.